0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to the New
1: Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. To call the hundred years that straddle the 19th and 20th centuries as a radical period of change for China is an understatement. As we move from the imperial period through the Republican era and ending in the rise of the PRC, Dr. Elizabeth La Couture's Dwelling in the World, Family, House, and Home in Tianjin, China, 1860-1960, to published by Columbia University Press, explores this history by looking at Tianjin, a city divided into nine foreign concessions and perhaps, at the time, the world's most cosmopolitan and colonized cities. With a focus on family and the home, Dr. Lacouture explores the interplay between these massive political changes in China and the lives of ordinary people. Dr. Elizabeth Lacouture is the founding director of the Gender Studies Program at the University of Hong Kong, where she is an assistant professor of gender studies and history. Dr. Lacouture and I talk about Tianjin, changing Chinese politics, and how that affected views of gender, family, and the home. We'll also investigate the thorny distinction between modernization and westernization. So, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start with talking about the central city um, that's part of your book, uh, Tianjin. It's not normally one, I think, that comes up a lot in our, let's say, mainstream histories of China. It's not Beijing. It's not Shanghai. It's not Nanjing. It's not Guangzhou. But what's so interesting about the city of Tianjin?
0: (sighs) Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me here um, to speak with you today about my book. Um, you know, first of all, let's just say that Tianjin is probably the most important um, understudied city in uh, modern Chinese history. By the 1920s, 30s, Tianjin was the second largest city in China, so second to Shanghai. And. Um, it was the Northern port city. So um, some scholars have suggested that more foreign goods went through the port of Tianjin than any other port. Um, So it was a very um, central and important um, economic, cultural city in the history of modern China. I think the reason that we hear a lot less about the history of Tianjin than the history of um, Shanghai, for example, is a lot to do with what happens to the life of Tianjin um, in the later part of the 20th century, Um, especially after you have opening up in China again to research um, and what have you. More and more scholars went to Shanghai to do research in Shanghai than to Tianjin. More, res- more resources went into Shanghai and building local history in Shanghai than into Tianjin. So I think we hear less about Tianjin because of what happened in the later half of the 20th century than actually how important it was at the time. But to your question also, why is it so interesting? I think it's particularly interesting because it's not Shanghai, right? So Shanghai really became this kind of modern metropole of of China. And um, Tianjin, again, was a very important city, but it never thought of itself as this sort of center of cultural modernity in the way that Shanghai did. And yet it was perhaps the most cosmopolitan city with nine foreign concessions located within the city. So I actually think that if we look at the history of everyday life in the city of Tianjin, we may get more of a sense of what the urban Chinese experience was like in other Chinese cities like Dalian or you know even Langzhou. Um, so I think that Tianjin offers us a different lens on to modern Chinese urban history and perhaps a lens that looks more like what the Chinese urban experience was like outside Shanghai.
1: So you note the, um, the foreign concessions in Tianjin and that there were nine of them. Um, again, I think we tend to think of these concessions as, you know, entirely foreign enclaves. Um, But you note that in fact many Chinese people chose to live in them for various reasons. Um, So I guess, kind of, what are the concessions, and and what's life like in them?
0: Yeah, and let me dial it back back a bit for um, listeners who aren't familiar with what a foreign concession actually was. Right. So this was a leased parcel of land. Usually, foreign countries acquired these as part of unequal treaties after wars. Um, The second opium war is when the first treaty ports were established in, uh, so the first concessions were established in Tianjin. Also after the Boxer uprising, several concessions were established. So they were leased parcels of land that were controlled by foreign governments. So that means that the foreign government, for example, the British government or the French government or the Italian government set up their own municipal council, set up their own zoning laws. And um, because Tianjin became this patchwork of multiple sort of foreign governed municipal councils, you also had each concession would decide what kind of electric electric company they would contract with? So you had different voltages running through different concessions. Um, what kind of water they would contract with? The British built their own water system, um, but the Italians, for example, Purchased water from the Tianjin Waterworks Company. Um, so you you really have these discrete municipalities throughout the city that are still interconnected with one another. Now, the interesting thing about this is we often think foreign concessions, it's foreign people who live in the foreign concessions. Well, take the British concession, for example, um, which was a very vibrant and from a real estate point of view, successful concession. British residents were the minority of the population. The vast majority were Chinese, um, especially wealthy Chinese, um, Chinese people who I kind of call for a lack of a better word, this new kind of growing middle class, Um, right? So what's very interesting, and this is how colonialism was operating in, in, in a city like Tianjin, the foreign governments, you know controlled these concession municipalities they were in charge of you know they were they were getting taxation benefits they were in charge of the local regulation but it was chinese money and chinese capital that made it run they needed the they needed the chinese investment in real estate they needed the chinese residents who lived in the concession so this actually Um, creates an interesting tension between um, Chinese property holders and, um, you know, and and, and the British municipal councils or the French municipal councils. Um, So it's an interesting dynamic colonial relationship that's going on here in which uh, Chinese residents actually have a lot of the economic power in the foreign concessions.
1: So one more big picture question, I think, well, and I'd like to get into um, some of the, the content of your book, but you know, the book covers 100 years of history. Um, a lot is happening in China um, during that 100 years of history. Um, and I guess, how does, how does Tianjin change between the imperial, then the republican, and then the communist periods of Chinese history?
0: Yeah, I I, I really like this question to think about this in terms of the big picture. You know, the book is 1860 to 1960. So 1860 is when Tianjin became a uh, treaty port city after the Second Opium War. And initially, when I framed this study, I thought I would end it in 1949, with the sort of founding of the People's Republic of China. Um, But As I went back, I said, you know what? I want to cross that 1949 divide because I think we have to look at this more um, long term and we need to look at it more long term to understand where we are today um, in terms of what's called the rising middle class in China. Because what I think happens is there's a huge rupture in the late Qing um, so what happens in the city of Tianjin, that really becomes central to fighting during the Boxer uprising. And after that, the city is really punished by the Foreign Eight Nation Alliance. Um, they physically punish the city by tearing down the wall that framed the old walled city. And I think that has a huge psychological imprint on the city, that when the built environment changes this, which is so connected to late imperial ideas about power and governance and cosmology, when the built environment is, is, is altered in such a violent way, Um, the spatial experience of everyday life is fractured and Chinese people in Tianjin are left to put the pieces together. And they draw on some things that are left from the late imperial history, but they also draw on this growing patchwork of multiple colonialisms developing in in their city. So in terms of the issue of family, house and home, which I'm really interested in, people are sort of creating what they think family, house, and home should look like. And this is what's going on in the Republican era. I really think it's this moment of creativity. And what comes out of it is this idea of the sort of modern house and home property connected to political identity with the Chinese individual male household head property owner as the center of that. Um, And interestingly, I think what happens is 1945, right? 1949 is not the moment we should be looking at. 1945, with the end of World War II, Tianjin becomes a fully Chinese city once more and the local government starts to address how do we deal with housing issues? And they start to talk about it, but of course, By 1949, you have the the, the so-called liberation of Tianjin, and it's one of the first things that the Communist Party starts to deal with. And um, what's interesting is this whole experimental, trying to figure out what family, house, and home is in the Republican era, really lays the foundation for the relationship between the family and the state in the early communist period. And I actually think that's the foundation that we will then see the Chinese Communist Party building on later on. Um, so when you think about the big picture, I think there's a huge rupture in the late chain. And then in the Republican era, you have these kinds of piecing together, creating something. And that is actually very influential, I believe, on what happens later.
1: So let's now get into some of the some of the things you talk about in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, and first maybe let's start with the idea of the, of the family. Um, how do ideas of the Chinese family change as China's politics change? And also kind of also, how does that affect the idea of the roles and responsibilities of women, um, in the family uh, over this period?
0: So I, you know, one thing I really try to dig into the book is looking at both ideas and practice. So there are ideological changes that go on, and then there are ways in which people listen to, don't listen to, adopt some of these things or don't adopt some of these things in their lives. Um, Now, family is a huge ideological shift because any of us familiar with the history of late imperial China, Know that in Neo Confucian ideology, the family and household and the house were very central to ideas about governance. You know, there's this famous Confucian quote that if you want to regulate the state, you must regulate the household. If you, if you regulate the household, the household will lead to a strong state. Um, so in late Imperial China, there is this idea that the household and the state are interconnected. And this is different than this sort of Western idea of public and private where they're separate, right? These are sort of embedded and interconnected. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's this big rupture in late Imperial China. So what does this mean to this concept? And what I argue is that whereas in late imperial China house, how you build your house is just as important as how you run your family and your household. Um, But in the sort of modern period in the Republican era, there's less of a focus on the structure, this cosmological idea of feng shui or how you design your house will impact governance. Instead, there's a real focus on, family relations and, uh, and ideas about family. And there's a tension there because I think two ideological concepts come out about family. One, and I'm going to be very simplistic here and call it sort of the May 4th literary ideal is the family is the enemy of the male individual. Um, the family, the old feudal family structure is the enemy of democracy. We need to get rid of this traditional feudal family. The other concept that emerges is the small family or the xiao jia ting. And this idea is that if we have small nuclear families, these will help modernize. The, the, the new nation. So there's these two competing ideas about family. One is sort of family is the enemy. The other is small family, not the old big family. And this will change society. Um, but again, both of these are really sort of dealing at this ideological level. They're pitting family and state against one another. What I found in my research, getting to the role of women, um, you know, this view of just family, these competing views, really limit the roles of women to either women that must escape the feudal family or women that must be housewives in the new small family. But what I found is an interesting sort of third sphere um, emerging for women in popular literature, and this is what I call the socialization sphere. Right. So there's lots of debates going on in women's magazines about the relationship between household and society and should women go out and work or should women make the family stronger. Um, But then there's also discussions of ways in which women can engage in urban life by going dancing, going ice skating, putting on lipstick, dating. Um, and, and, and this is an alternative sphere that also develops and is discussed in popular press. And we even see this, for example, in uh, Tianjin has a pictorial magazine called the Beiyang Bao, um, in which every cover features sort of a socialite woman, right? Women become the representatives of their family in this social sphere, um, so it's not just about women being connected to their families; it's also about them engaging in this new vibrant urban social life.
1: Yeah, there, there there's a lot of that answer, and to kind of cover some of the other things I was hoping to to bring up. Um, maybe let's talk about about the home. I mean, you your book uh- talks about architecture and kind of how. There's this sense of the outside and the inside, and mm-hmm. how European homes have one construction of this, and Chinese homes have a, very different, have a very different construction of this. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you might kind of get into the the differences between how the home is understood in Europe and in China, and then how these kind of two ideas came together in in Tianjin.
0: Yeah. So, you know, we also have to think about this idea of home or domesticity is really a modern construct uh, wherever it is in the world. I mean, the cult of domesticity really comes out in the 19th century, for example, in the U.S. or the U.K. Um, So home is sort of a new concept everywhere. Um, But you know, on the one hand, you have women's magazines putting out this new idea, which is this kind of global idea of home. But you also have a city with multiple types of housing now, right? By the early 20th century, um, you can choose to live in a different kind of house. And um, so one of the chapters of the book is called Choosing a Home. And it profiles three houses that um belong to, or there were three different people um, lived. And the idea behind this chapter was to also demonstrate how just moving into a different kind of house than where you grew up in completely changes your sense of social relations. So to give you an example, um, one of the people featured is a man who worked for the post office named Song Sik. And I came across him in the archive because he was requesting an increase in his rent. And he chose to rent a villa in the Italian concession. And, of course... Song Sik, probably, I'm guessing by the Cantonese pronunciation of his name, probably came from southern China. Um, We don't know what house he grew up in, but I'm guessing that he grew up in a sort of vernacular Chinese architectural home in southern China. And now here he is living in Tianjin in a villa. And the way in which this semi-attached house is constructed requires a completely different way of living than Chinese vernacular architecture would have required. Um, So for example, Chinese architecture traditionally um, would be one story and it would be built on a north-south axis. The altar, sort of the ancestral altar would be the center of the home and the sort of social relations would radiate around that. So the household head um, their quarters would be closest to that. Um, the servants would live the farthest away from that. The kitchen would probably be in the back, far away from that. Um, let's let's see what his house looked like in Tianjin. Instead of being built on this north-south axis, it's vertical, right? And downstairs, you have this kind of public, kind of private space, um, the drawing room, the dining room where you can meet guests. Upstairs would be the bedrooms, completely private spaces. And each family member would ideally have an individual bedroom, right? That's a new concept. And then where do the servants sleep? Where is the kitchen in the basement? So literally in this social structure, we're putting master above servant quite literally. Um, So just to move into one of these houses now, requires new ideas about individualism privacy um, servant master um, you know what does the what does the household labor like the kitchen mean when it's in the basement um, so we can't discount how these physical spaces actually radically changed everyday life for the people who lived in them
1: so, As you noted earlier, kind of your book does cover kind of the beginnings of of the the beginnings of communist China. And one thing that struck me was that, you know, there's a great deal of energy put behind showing, um, I'm going to call, let's say, kind of prosperity in the home, um, at least on a which would seem, you know, admittedly on a very shallow basis. And I know in practice, it's much more Mm -hmm. complicated than that. But it does seem kind of on a very shallow basis to work against what people might normally conceive of what's happening in in a socialist society. I guess kind of what's happening in communist China and its view of home life, at least in this early stage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, this really struck me as well. And this is part of what I said earlier of deciding I wanted to move beyond this Forty-nine divide, which had inhibited historians for so long, you know, they would just end at the end of the Republican era and not go on. Um, But I started looking at propaganda posters published in the fifties, and it it did. It went against my preconceptions, just like you would say. Um, To kind of explain to the listeners, uh, one poster that I talk about in the in the in the book features a family they're sitting around a table it is filled with food and bounty there are children at the table there are toys there's a radio there's a vase with flowers um mom is wearing a red pow with an apron dad is wearing workers overall and a cap and then behind the family is a poster of Mao Zedong, right? So there's 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 two reasons for for this. I mean, the first reason for this picture of bounty that seems to look much more like the bounty we see in advertising posters from the 1930s than what we will see later on in Chinese propaganda um, posters. And one reason is that the it's the same people who are artists for the posters so you have people who were working in advertising in you know republican era shanghai and tianjin and now they're working in advertising for the communist party so they're drawing on all these techniques that they learn to sell products in an earlier time period so that's one reason for the continuity but i think there's a bigger ideological reason going on and i think that you know During the post-war, the entire world is devastated after World War II, and they have to rebuild for the future. And this is where you have two ideological streams that are selling the same thing, but differently. Um, So just like we're advertising a bountiful life with lots of consumer goods and lots of food on the table... In communist China, in the United States, for example, they're also selling the future of a prosperous life. But in the United States, you get there through capitalism. In China, you get there through that image of Mao on on your wall, right? That idea that believing in that ideology, that is what is going to get you there. Um, So... After World War II, visions of prosperity look remarkably similar across the world. It's just how you get there, there are these two kinds of ideology. Um, Now, looking beyond ideology to life on the ground, one of the first things that the communists get to working on in Tianjin is dealing with the housing crisis. Um, Because in multiply colonized Tianjin, the foreign concessions do not care about the working class. They don't care about the poor, right? They want to develop housing in their concession to sell it to wealthy Chinese investors so they can make money. Um, So there's a huge gap of people who don't have housing, and this needs to be addressed. And so this is one of the first things that um, the Tianjin government really tries to deal with. And there's some experimentation in kind of new socialist um, workers' housing developments. But there's also housing that is built very much modeled on this ideal of the nuclear family and the sort of single middle-class home. Um, And that ends up being the ideal that kind of wins out in, um, in, in early socialist China housing development in Tianjin
1: so I have one more question and okay. it's another big one um, okay. <laughs> it, it seems like and this is by I know this has been very very constant debate in in history and kind of yeah. studies of these changes um, but you know I think I think it's there's a tendency to kind of sometimes see or, or present, you know, modernization and Westernization as Mm -hmm. kind of equivalent. Um, And how does what happens in the foreign concessions of Tianjin kind of affect that view or affect our understanding of Mm -hmm. what it means to quote unquote modernize?
0: So I think, first of all, we need to lose the ization and then Mm. we can have, then we can have a conversation, right? Because, um, I think that when we talk about the modern or we talk about modernity, we can actually see equal experiences happening in different parts of the world um, at around the same time or similar reactions to certain kinds of material experiences. Um, to give you an example, when I first started doing this research, I was really interested in electricity and what's the experience when you first have electricity in your your city. And um, you know, I was at a conference talking about this, and at the end, an elder gentleman um, who was, had grown up in India said, "This really resonated with me in my experience when electricity first came to my village." Um, when I think about Tianjin and the challenges of uh, telephone and having a switchboard operator in a city with multiple languages. I remember discussing this with my grandmother who was a switchboard operator in the United States. Um, So I think that when we focus on the experience of modernity, we will see similarities. But I also want to, to point out that Tianjin is Unique, and I think that my book makes a contribution in looking at modernity in terms of the built environment, in terms of style that um, shows the ways in which Tianjin and perhaps Chinese experiences were different than 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 what we see coming out of Shanghai, because of course the Shanghai modern is so famous and well known and well documented the Paris of the East we know about art deco and you know when i read magazines from shanghai in the 1920s and 30s they use this whole lexicon of modernity they use the chinese word modang or they call it contemporary xiantai things are always modern but they're never foreign which is very interesting to think about how people in shanghai um, in the creative industries thought about themselves engaging in modernity. In Tianjin, for, by contrast, though, we see something very different. When I read women's magazines in Tianjin talking about interior design, for example, they note when things are modern as opposed to traditional or Western as opposed to Chinese, noting that one is not necessarily better than the other, but they are both there. And what I argue is they both need to be there because you something becomes modern when you have it juxtaposed against something traditional. And something is traditional because there's something modern sitting right next to it, right? And the Chineseness gets its Chineseness when it's juxtaposed against Westernness. So... This is what I call chimeric modern because you see all the individual pieces and parts juxtaposed against one another. And this is, I mean, this is how the city of Tianjin is is, is built. You still have the old Chinese city with courtyard houses, the shadow of where the wall used to stand next to this patchwork of little Italy and little France and and little Europe it's all there juxtaposed against each other and that is how this unique modern style develops in the city and i think this goes back to your first question why study tianjin because i think tianjin actually lets us get to this question the essence of this question is what does modernity mean in chinese history and culture. And it's a question that Shanghai studies has dominated for so long um, because there has been so much research on Shanghai. But I think that focusing on Tianjin and, you know, my book in particular opens the door to other scholars to think about modernity and Chinese culture and history in different ways than we have in the past.
1: So I think that's a great place to end our interview with Dr. Elizabeth LaCouture, author of Dwelling in the World, Family, House, and Home in Tianjin, China, 1860 to 1960. Elizabeth, I actually have one more question for you, Okay. um, which is uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you?
0: So um, the book is available in any place that sells <laughs> books. You can you can purchase it directly from Columbia University Press or from your favorite um, brick and mortar or online bookseller. Um, what's next for me is I am working on two projects. One is on um, the history of beauty and cosmetics throughout the Chinese Sinophone. And actually practicing what I preach and looking at alternative cities and women's history in in Chinese modern history, I'm starting a new project on women's magazines in Hong Kong where I am currently located at the University of Hong Kong. So I'm really excited now to um, get to know my home city of Hong Kong, um, the history better.
1: So, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author reviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. The Interview Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for a special one-year anniversary episode with my good friend Noor Nasreen Ibrahim, who will talk about her essay contribution to Horse Girls, Recovering, Aspiring, and Devoted Writers Redefine the Iconic Bond. But before then, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining me today.
0: Thank you.